This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. series on uh, thank you but as you I, I like that I, I, the way that you leapt up to um, to set me up a stand is good but I'll just hold it yeah thanks I like you too <laughs> we'll do that that talks in a few weeks time <laughs> okay anyway right we'll record from now <laughs> so I think if you if you thought oh no uh, a talk about uh, singleness. If you're single, that means that you're at that stage, either pre-marriage or maybe you've been divorced and post-marriage or you've been widowed or widower and you're not married and you're in that sort of single phase that we all go, go through. One of the things that single people really worry about, and I'm not going to mention which single person said this to me, but they th- said, oh, the trouble with churches is that they're always banging on about single people getting married. It's all about just get married, get married. And I've probably done that. And it's difficult because ch- church is a positive view of marriage. You know, we feel positive about marriage. The Bible's very marriage positive. But yet, at the same time, because the Bible's full of paradoxes, it's also very single positive. It's not single negative. And one of the things that we need to really make sure that when we're talking about uh, singleness, that we don't talk about it as if it's a problem that needs to be fixed and that you're not really a fully formed person until you're married. And so although we delight when people get married, the truth is that we don't want to see people who are not married as less than a full person. So what I want to do is I want to be really, really positive about singleness, but at the same time I want to challenge both us, whether we're married or single, some of the thoughts and viewpoints about kind of singleness and marriage and how that kind of shapes and misshapes us. And then I want to talk about being single. I could have said a lot, lot more, but obviously I had to narrow it down. So I've got three points. You don't need to put them up, Vicky, out, but I've got three points. The first one is an overemphasis or an over-desire to be married. The second one, guess what that is? An under-desire to get married. And the third one is, I've just called it for want of a better title, singleness in the gospel community. If you've got a Bible, it's in, I'm going to read some verses from 1 Corinthians 7. We talked last time, when I talked about sex, last time we talked about how Corinthians, uh, Corinth was a big, massively sex-saturated society, temple prostitutes, people, immorality. The church was completely messed up about sex, uh, and Paul addresses it quite a lot, so it always feels like a good place to start in our society that's hugely messed up about sex as well. So Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 7.27, second part of the verse, he says, Are you single... Do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin, which is helpful. If a young woman uh, or a virgin gets married, it's not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. 
I'm trying to spare you those problems because the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should live as if they haven't got them, or I think better, she should focus not only on their marriage. Those who are sad, as if they were not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy things, as if the things were not theirs. Those who use things of this world should not become engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And I want you to be free from the concerns of life. Father, we just pray as we look at this passage and we springboard out of this passage into talking about singleness. I just pray that you'd help me to communicate clearly your heart uh, as a Jesus, as a single man yet fully formed in every way. But yet understanding the, the goodness of marriage. And Lord, we just want to have a proper view of marriage. We want to see it as penultimate, not ultimate. And we want to allow that to shape us, to create in us, married or single, the right approaches to singleness. Amen. Okay, so the, you know, the traditional kind of ways of viewing singleness is really that it's kind of God's plan B. As if, well, really, plan A, he's got to get married, have kids, have a family and all that. And plan B is, yes, and if you can't find anyone, then, you know, you're just, you're going to be single. And it's kind of not really God's best at all. And, and uh, Tim Keller in his book quotes a blog that he found called, by a lady called Paige Benton Brown. And she picks up four negative, four ways that the church often views marriage all have a grain of truth in them, but also a lot of untruth. So I'm just going to read those. I'm sorry there's not a PowerPoint, but... So so this is the first thing that you might hear. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he will bring you someone special into your life. So that's an often thing. Well, get satisfied with God alone, and then bring someone... Spe- then God will bring someone special into your life. What's, what's true about that, and what's not true? Turn to your partner and discuss. Quick. Okay. What's, what's, what's true about it? What's true about it? Uh, who wants to talk? Hands up. Thank you, Justina. Good. So it, it's true that we need to be satisfied in God, but what's not true? Brilliant, Naomi. Did you read my notes? That was all. Not everybody who's married is satisfied in God. It's completely not true that, that those of us that are married have, have reached that sp- stage of spiritual maturity where God is able to trust us with a wife or husband. And those of you who are not married are in some sort of sub-state of Christian maturity where you've really got to work much harder. As if you can earn being married. It's wrong. God's, we don't earn it by being content in Him. He blesses because he blesses. Or another one that's on a similar line. Before you can marry someone wonderful, God has to make you someone wonderful. Same thing again. Not going to ask you to discuss that. thing is, God does want to make you someone wonderful. He has made you someone wonderful. He's in the process of making you more and more the person you created to be. But the fact is, there's a heck of a lot of married people that are far from wonderful, who are married to somebody far from wonderful. And it's not about being wonderful, wonderful, and then you can get married. That's just not true. It's not that God grants marriage as a second blessing to those who are perfect. Here's one. You're too picky. You're too picky. Turn to your neighbor and say, why is that true and not true? Tricky one, this. If you don't know, I'll explain it as we go. Okay? Hands up, who wants to play? Why is it, why is it true? <laughs> God is not 
limited. He doesn't want you to marry someone you don't want. You know, bottom line, don't want you to marry someone you don't want. It's not like, oh, well, you know, we, as you come in the church, they give you a raffle. They did this at college. When I came to college here, they give you a blue raffle ticket and a pink raffle ticket. You're number one then, and when you, you, you team up, and that's how it goes. It's not that God is not able to meet your needs. He's not able to give you. It's not like he struggles with, he needs some broader parameters from you. Could you give me someone, you know, I've got uh, 150 very mean, nasty men, uh, you know, at, and are any of you ladies interested as if like there's God's limited by who he can give you? That's not the problem. He's not short of parameters. But the other side of it is that actually we can too, be too picky because, and I'll tell you why later. Okay, the third, third one is as a single you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to God's work. Why is that true? Why is it false? Turn to your neighbor. As a single you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to God's work. And so you're not worried. Paul says it later in the chapter. You're not worried about uh, meeting your wife's needs, meeting your husband's needs. Okay, so that mean that is true. But why is it wrong? But it's not true, is it? Says he, giving the answer that he had on his paper. It's not true that you need to be an emotional martyr to serve God's purposes. You got to think, you know, I'll hate, I'm miserable. I'm on my own, or whatever. I'm caricaturing singleness, please. You know, whatever. But but at least I'm serving God. It's not that God wants that for us. Married or single, you can serve God. And Badders is right in that one. Tim Keller points out that beneath these statements is the idea that the single life is a state of deprivation for people who are not yet fully formed for marriage. And that's just really not true. It's, it's not that, you know, you have got to live in this state of deprivation, of singleness, and then when everything's ready, then you can get ready for marriage. That's not true. And I think we, meet, we need to knock that in the head straight away. But I want to talk about two things that, that, uh, that came out almost incidentally in Tim Keller's book that really struck me. So the first is an over-desire for marriage, an over-desire for marriage. In traditional honor and shame cultures... Honor came from being married. It came from having, a, for a male particularly, it came from having a, a male heir, hence, you know, Henry VIII's uh, kind of obsession with having a male heir, not just about succession, but generally that was the case. You had to have children. The more children you had, uh, the, the bigger your family, the more likely your name was going to continue uh, going forward. It was all about your heir and preserving your name. So honor was in that, and obviously shame was it that if you didn't have an heir. And obviously flipping over for females, their purpose for females was to bear children in traditional cultures, and that was really all they were for. And if a woman couldn't bear children, then that was great shame. So you'd have to look, say, at Abraham and Sarah, first kind of really on in Genesis 12. If you're doing the essential 100, you've probably gone there. But Abraham, obviously, is worried. He's like, a, a you know, a Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. You know, my name's going to wither away. God's obviously promised him an heir, not just not just because he wants to bless the world through that heir, but also because that that's part of what he, what you want to do as a man. You want to pass your name on. And and Sarah feels great shame that she can't bear children. And that's how it was. And you can read it in Isaiah, single barrel woman who's never born a child. There's this sense of shame. And that's a traditional culture. But actually, um, and long-term singleness in adults was considered a life that was less fulfilled or half-realized. And that was the culture that you lived in. And this created a view in culture that, that men and women can only be fulfilled 
in family roles or giving birth to children that, that actually the worst place it could be would be unfamilied, without a family. So you'd hear a lot about orphans and widows and widowed women, and widowed women were very vulnerable. So you read the story of Ruth. Uh, she's very vulnerable, and she's really needs a, a, she needs a man. Because in that culture, there wasn't welfare state, there wasn't, women didn't earn. If they didn't have a man, there was this sense, sense of shame. They were very, very vulnerable. So, but Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, a bit earlier on from what I read, he unpicks that traditional view, and he's massively pro-single, which is not what the culture was around. So he says this. He says, I wish everyone were single. Just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God, one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, which is incredibly radical to say to widows, don't remarry. It's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if you can't control yourself, you should go ahead and marry because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. Paul, those, both those statements are really countercultural. In fact, you read in Acts 6, don't you, that actually one of the things was we need to look after the widows. That was the, the church in Acts 6 saying we need to look after widows. But actually, the, the culture around did not look after widows. It did not look after women. If they were outside of a marriage, they were non-people. And so it's very countercultural to say you don't need to marry again as a widow. You can serve Jesus and that let's provide for them. And also it's very countercultural in, in kind of Jewish circles, but not in Greek circles where Paul's kind of half and half. So I actually say it's better to marry than if you can't control yourself. You know, what happens in Corinth is they couldn't control themselves because they're having sex everywhere. And he's saying, no, that's a real, real factor. You need to factor that in. He, and, and actually, that wasn't what people said. And we talked about that before, that actually it was all about controlling yourself. And the only purpose of having sex was for kids. It wasn't about pleasure. But Paul is countercultural in both of those. And, and therefore, but actually he goes on to, we shouldn't be an engrossing desire uh, in the search for a wife or husband. And he puts that alongside the engrossing uh, desire for pleasure and for uh, uh, possessions and stuff. Let me just read again the context. It says, uh, so from now on, those with wives should not focus on their marriage. It says, those who are sad as though they were not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy things as though they were not theirs. For those who use the things of this world should not become engrossed in them, for this world in its present forms passing away. What's Paul saying? What he's saying is, you can be glad when things go well, but you shouldn't be defined by success. You shouldn't be definingly glad. In other words, if I succeed in my business or my job or my life, then I'm def- that defines me. I am ha- ultimately happy. And the flip side is that you shouldn't, if you're sad, you shouldn't be definingly crushed by sadness or bitterness. And that's true for our lives, isn't it? It's, you know, but some people who are very successful, they're defined by their success. And some people who've had challenges and difficulties and rejections are defined by that failure. And he's saying, no, don't do that. And so he makes the, that point. And he also talks about buying. He says, if you buy things, you know, if you're a big consumer, if you buy things and possessions, don't become engrossing these possessions as if they were yours. In other words, it's okay to have possessions, it's okay to buy things, but we don't become engrossed with them. And then he mentions marriage. What the context in marriage then, yes, it's okay to be married, but one is not defined by being married. 
And equally, if one is not married, one is not defined ultimately by not being married. Let me say that again. Paul is saying you are not ultimately defined by the fact you are married. Even though the church values and honors marriage, and Paul talks in Ephesians about imaging Christ in the church, that you're not ultimately defined by your marriage, and you're not ultimately defined by your lack of marriage. So that means that what you shouldn't do is if you're married, you shouldn't focus completely on being married. That should not be your overriding obsession. He's not saying neglect your marriage. Those who have wives should should live as if they haven't got any. He's not saying don't. You know, don't give a monkeys about your wife. What he's saying is that you should not overly focus on them as if that defines you. What's that called? If you focus on something other than God that defines you. It's called idolatry. Now you think, how can idolatry, that idolatry is about bad things. But Paul mentions happiness, success, uh, he mentions possessions, and he mentions marriage, and all are, all are neutral in that sense, but can become idolatry. It can be the very thing that you chase after. So marriage in that sense, and the things that go with it, security, significance, identity, satisfaction, are all can be found in marriage, but ultimately, those need to be found in God. Now we know that in theory, but we don't believe it if we obsess about marriage. So married couples then, if you're married, marriage, the best marriage in the world, me and Nays, I cannot fulfill the void in Naomi, even in my perfection, for that, that, that God should fulfill. So therefore, in my own imperfection and grumpiness and whatever, I am definitely going to be a disappointment to her. And if you invest all your hope in your partner, the fact is you will not, you will not find yourself satisfied. You just put pressure on marriage to fulfill you. And Tim Keller says it misshapes your life. It's pathological. It misshapes your life. And I've seen this. I've seen couples where all their attention is about each other. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about each other. All their attention is so about fulfilling the needs of the other that actually they lose who they are. And in one sense you think, well, that's what's supposed to happen. You have to become one flesh. But the desire to meet the needs of your wife actually can shipwreck who you are. And likewise, the desires to meet the needs of your husband can shipwreck who you are. And when marriage gets out of shape, but it is, instead of being three, it talks about a cord of three strands that, strands that cannot be broken, which is, means Jesus needs to be interwoven in marriage. You can spend all your time with a, with a demanding, a needy, a vulnerable, a controlling, you put whatever word, a nasty kind of person, and all your time and energy is spent that way. And that is not what God wants for you from marriage. It will put you in the wrong shape. So if you're single, it's still, it's true. If you're single, you must also see marriage as penultimate. If you too need to believe that without a deeply satisfying love relationship with Jesus that shapes who you are, how we view, tr- who we trust and how we view ourselves, we too will put too much pressure on the dream of marriage and guess what? It misshapes your life. It's the same married or single. It's not different. So if you cannot put Jesus first, if you are obsessed with your marriage, single 
the hope of marriage or married, you will find your life will be out of shape. Now, you don't hear that talked about much in church because it's more about getting your marriage right, and that is part of it, and we'll talk about that. But do you understand the point I'm making? That you have to. It's the same for all of us. Uh, The same idolatry of marriage that can distort our lives, whether we're married or single. So Paul then unpacks this and says, a married man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. Sorry, an unmarried man. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is, who is no longer married or has never been married can devote herself to the Lord. But the married woman has to think about earthly responsibilities, how to please her husband. He's not saying that you, can't, you aren't to do those things. But he's saying if they get out of shape, it will misshape your marriage and ultimately. So the wife that demands more and more and more from her husband... Some of that demand, you know, may be valid, but ultimately she needs to realize that Jesus needs to be the one who fulfills her. And that's whether it's true with a married woman or single woman. It's true with a married man or single man. Okay, and I've known men and women who've not fulfilled their purpose in life because they've spent all their time hand-pumping, as it were, bailing out their marriage. Their marriage has been so vulnerable, so broken, never got fixed, never really faced the reality that what happens is they never pursue the, the things that God has got for them. And actually, you can say, yes, it's good to be a husband, it's good to have kids, and it's good to do those things, and being a family is part of what God's got for us, and that's true. But actually, you can wake up, and Paul says, time is short, I think he's talking about eschatologically, in other words, time is short before Jesus comes, but he's also, life is short, I'm 53 now. And if I'd waited for the slow day when I could serve Jesus or the day when I was contented or the day when everything, all my emotional and spiritual ducks were in a row, I'd never have served Jesus once. And you can wake up old and your life is gone. And you've poured it into marriage, which seems a really good thing, but actually it's not the ultimate thing. So Keller says this, says, there's no reason to wait so there's no reason to wait. Begin now to demote marriage and family in your heart. You think, Keller, how can you say that? You've written a brilliant book on marriage. You know, how can you say demote marriage? But if you've got an overview of marriage, it's time to demote it and say, let's get it in its correct place. Demote marriage and family in your heart and put God first. And if you're single, enjoy the goodness of the single life. Jesus was fully, fully formed fully, fully fulfilled, and he was single. Paul, fully, fully formed, fully fulfilled, and he was single. But actually what's happened is society has demoted marriage, hasn't it? So it's dangerous to say demote marriage because what society has demoted marriage and not put God on the throne, put, not put God first, but put who first? themselves, and this was a point that was made earlier so eloquently by our visitor from London, thank you, (laughs) you know, that that actually you can put yourself first, that what we've done is we've rejected maybe the the traditional roles of saying, I am going to uh, fulfill this, fulfill that, whatever, and I'm going to put myself first, and that's what we do, so actually, and this is therefore what marriage is replaced is marriage becomes the finishing line it becomes the kind of gold medal moment the podium moment in the race called life defining romance 
life-defining romance. So actually, Hollywood, if you notice, all the films are about life-defining romance. I mean, there's a song, but I'm ashamed that I know it. You might even be able to finish it, Tony. If you like Pina Colada and Getting Caught in the Rain... If you're not into health food, does anyone know that? If you're not into, it's a song by, if you like pina colada, Gustav's nodding, thank you. Getting caught in the rain, if you're not into health, and it says, if you like making love at midnight, in the dunes by the Cape, never heard it, (laughs) never heard it sung like that. (laughs) But the whole thing, I, I just thought of that and I thought, it's all about, you know the films, it's like, there's this, this, there's the kind of interaction. Will they, won't they? Will they get together, won't they? But when they get together, sorry, I, oh yes, I'm going to choose someone else. <laughs> will they get, when they get together, the, the conversation stops, doesn't it? And you know, there's a kind of montage with a nice film, and it's kind of like fun in the fountain, buying things and trying on silly hats in the market. You know, the sort of films, don't you? Walking along the beach in the surf, you know, and then it go, you go back home, and there's this just amazing sex moment. All the clothes are torn off, you know, and there's just enough flesh to keep you interested, because they're always a 15, because they're for teenagers as well. And it's like, whoa, the moment has come. And then what happens is, you know, there's a little bit of, after that, there's a, a little bit, oh no, it's going to break up. Yes, it's going to. No. And then what happens, the film finishes with, they all get married in a lovely garden, don't they? The end. Yeah? But that's not life, is it? That is not life. Life does not, is not this life-defining romance with marriage as a certificate of their senses. I have had this life-defining romance. Because you know what? The director's got no thought of film number two. Dirty dishes at 9.15 on a Saturday morning with screaming teenagers. You know, that's really good. Yeah, and if it is, the, the marriage, the view of marriage is all negative. So it's all wonderfully positive in the run-up to it. The newness, the sexual tension, the moments of intimacy. And then once the marriage comes... So we value marriage as this kind of end point. I want to be married because I want to have that soft focus moment in my life that fully defines me. And it's wrong. It is not. It's an over-desire for marriage. So the under-desire for marriage is that there's the flip side. And this is probably more common in our culture. So while church might say, wrongly, you aren't a whole person until you're married. And even society might say, what, have you never had sex? can you be a whole person? You've never had that life-defining romance. How can you be a whole person? What, you're not going to have sex? What? You can't be a fool. You know, are you really a real person? Are you really a man? Are you really a woman? So life says that. Church says that. You aren't a whole person until you're married. But actually, increasingly, it's, there's an under-desire for marriage. And it's not surprising, is it? Because our society is a consumer society. It's all about you and your stuff. It's about we're commitment adverse. What makes us commitment averse? What's the other big word in society? Consumerism and choice. Yes. Choice is brilliant. Look at all the women in the world. But when you choose, choice turns to Commitments. Unless you think, well, I'm going to have multiple partners, which is what the world would do. Choice turns to commitment. When you commit, you rule out all the other choices. And that is not 
what consumer society is about. Consumer society is about the thrill of, will I have the iPhone 5? Will I have the iPhone 5? Am I ready for the upgrade? Am I ready for the upgrade? Oh, I've got the iPhone 5. Oh, I've got the iPhone 5. Oh, well, there'll be an iPhone 6 along, isn't it? And that's what we're taught, isn't it? Next product, next product, next product. And when you choose, it's not about commitment in our society. It's about, well, you choose for a while and the next one. And so there's this sense where actually consumer society, we fear to choose for limiting our options. And you know what? We fear choosing the worst model. You can use that in whichever sense it's meant. So here's two quotes from a blog I read that says, I'm not single, says the blogger. I'm in a long-standing relationship with fun and freedom. Another one, same, same blog. Being single used to mean nobody wanted you. She never meant that. But in her head, it felt like that. Now it means you're pretty and sexy. Sorry, I better not do that. It's like sexy, but now you're pretty and sexy, and you're taking your time. You're taking your time deciding what you want to do with your life and who you want to do it with. Yeah, it's about choice. It's about choice. And what happens is, uh, Tim Keller talks about this in his book. He says, the modern fear of marriage is that singles become perfectionists, virtually impossible to satisfy as they look for a husband and wife because it's about choice. I must choose the perfect model. And when, and the fear is I've chosen and she's not perfect. He's not perfect. Get used to it, guys. Every model you choose is imperfect, broken and damaged, not what you want. So you know what? Men look for near perfection in what? Let's be real. In girls, yeah. Looks, thank you, I said girls. Yeah, <laughs> in looks. Men want physical looks. And, and our view of perfection is painted by airbrushed magazines and silicon-enhanced models. That's the view of perfection. That's what I need to have. I need to have that kind of woman. I need to have that kind of woman. Why do you need to have that kind of woman? Because she's going to look good on my arm and she's going to look good in bed. It's selfish, selfish. It's not saying, I want a wife who I can sacrificially meet her needs and we can grow together in God. It's saying, I want a wife who's going to make me look good. It's all about pride. So people in our society, and it filters into the church, are so picky because actually they're scared to choose a broken person. And we all are. And women... Do you know what the surveys say? What kind of muscle do women like? Financial muscle. Women, in all our equality world, women do like classic good looks, but they like financial muscle. They like financial muscle because they want to be kept in the means that they become accustomed. Let's move quickly. So Tim Keller says this, as a result, modern dating can become a remarkably crass form of self-marketing. You must look good and have money if you are to attract dates or a spouse. And the reason you want them good-looking or affluent is because of your self-esteem. It's all about me. And I've had discussions with church leaders as we've talked and they've kind of, we've commented and congratulated ourselves about how attractive our wives are. And one church leader said to me, well, you know, leaders always get good-looking wives. And I, I, I kind of smiled and thought, yeah, 
well, I've got a good looking wife, so I must be a leader. Obviously, my leadership gift isn't as fully formed as his, but it's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's just from the world. I'm not saying you have to find the person unattractive, but you've got to ask yourself the question, are you a consumer in your choice? The fear of marrying less than a perfect partner is often just pride in another name. We're more concerned with how they look to other people than what they are inside. And you know what we've got? We've got the hookup culture now. So the culture is courting. Used to be, remember courting, courting, you see these old films, you know, kind of southern Georgia where little Miss, well, Mar- Miss Molly, well, I'd just like to come calling. Yeah, and, you know, whatever. And they'd come and call, wouldn't they? And they'd say, Mr. Mister Zachary is here to call for you. <laughs> and you'd sit in the parlor and there'd be, there'd be Zachary and there'd be Molly and there'd be Molly's mom and dad. <laughs> and you made polite conversation. And he's coming to court. And, right. And we think, what? Well, how outdated. How terrible. Imagine that. You're meeting the parents. Well, you must be getting married next week. Actually, you met the parents first sometimes. So that was how it was. I'm not saying that was right or wrong. And then what, what happened next? Dating. Dating took it out of the family and out of character. What's this person like? And took it into what? Let's have some, let's go out and have fun. Let's have money, entertainment. Let's have fun. Take me out for a nice meal. Take me out on a holiday, even though we're not married. Nobody don't tell anyone, and I tell them when you get back. That's all fine. We'll do all that. Let's go out and have fun. And you know the a New York Times survey that Keller quote said that actually teenagers now are finding dating boring because there's just too much time spent trying to talk to the person. Too much time trying to interact with the person. Too much time trying to find out what the person's like. What we really want to do is cut to the... Yeah, you can fill in whatever word you want to cut to in there. But so what happens now in New York, Keller says, it's the hookup culture. I was watching uh, uh, Comedy Central, Michael McIntyre was... Yeah, and there's an advert of a lady walking out of her door in just a bra and pants and a guy walking out of his door, sort of Beckham style, in his pants. And it's all about, if you just want fun, cut to the chase with naughty dating. It's like, well, why should we bother getting to know each other? You know, what I really want is some rumpy-pumpy, so let's just go there. So whereas foreplay and sex was meant to be a gift that you gave to your one spouse that's precious. It's now given away cheaply, casually. And that's what's happened because we're too scared to commit. We're not interested in forming relationships. We've got this underview of marriage. Why on earth would you want to get married? So last one, singleness in the gospel community. Everybody, as I've said, will experience a time of singleness. I was 31 when I got married. So I had a decade plus of singleness. Uh, my, my mom's been widow, widowed for 34 years. So she's at the other end, as it were, of life stage. And she's, she's had singleness. And with divorce, so prevalent, singleness is, is right out there. So I thought about it and I thought, how can I come through this because there's so much to say. So I chose three statements about how as a church we might approach singleness. Okay, so the first one 
I want it's a from to kind of statement. From alone to community. The most natural desire to get is to get married is the desire for companionship. You don't want to be alone. And right at the start of Genesis, God says it's not good for man, mankind to be alone. But the truth is our culture has moved away from extended families, mums, dads, grandpas, whatever, the tribe, all living together in the same place. And it's moved to couples and nuclear families with kids and atomized single people. So what happens is that, that in our society, in our culture, single people are left out. They're abandoned. They're left out. They're excluded. And one of the big fears about why you don't want to be single is because you don't want to be excluded. And one of the things that I find surprising is, take average person, single person, let's call him Joe. We haven't got a Jovi. Average Joe, and he's wants to, he's, he's kind of out there, he's living a life, he's hanging with the singles, he's whatever, he's being friendly. He gets a partner, let's call her Josephine, and suddenly Joe and Josephine are this incredibly interlocked, interwoven, hands held, tightly together, let no one break them, and suddenly all their single friends, well, we just find them so childish and annoying now. And what happens is couples then date with, go out with couples and couples have couples around for dinner. And families do that. Families have families around for dinner and families have couples around for dinner. And what happens with the single people? We don't really have them around for dinner. We don't really think that they need to be included. So what happens is too many dating couples have actually or metaphorically in their bedrooms. Locked away against the world. Locked away where we need to have time. We need to have our time. I'm not just saying that you don't need to have time to get together, but you don't need as much time. You don't need as much time after 11, 30, 12, 1. You don't need that much time. Because you know what you do in that much time? Yes, exactly. You do. Because you were there and you were that person. <laughs> And you only venture out to, to socialize with other single couples. It is atomized, individualistic, selfish society. The Christian shape for church is what? If you can't answer this question, where have you been? Christian shape for church is what? Family, outward facing family. Psalm 68 verse 6 says, God sets the lonely in families. That means your family should be open. Your door should be open. Single people should be around your house. Trouble is, single people think, I don't want to be around the Kellys because they're not cool. And we think, oh, we don't want to be around single people because they never wash up. And they're self-indulgent. And it's rubbish and we need to break it. God doesn't set the lonely in small group meetings on Tuesdays and Sundays. So some people say, the thing about our G1 communities, there's no gospel. This is gospel. God sets the lonely in families. That's gospel. You don't have to turn to your Bible to have gospel. It's good to break bread together and we want to do that. But it's not. it doesn't say God sets the lonely in Bible studies. It sets them in families. Think about if you're single or you're dating, being around a family is going to teach you two things. One, marriage is great and one, marriage is useless. <laughs> You're going to find some advice on doing marriage well, and you're going to find some advice on, I wouldn't do it like that. 
And it's going to rescale your expectations. Josh is nodding. Obviously, people being around your house, Josh, and they're saying, their bar's going down. They're lowering the bar. And they're thinking, Yana has married Josh. She doesn't, she didn't, oh, she wasn't picky and she's happy. (laughs) But what we've done is we've turned in on ourselves. We need to uh, be uh, single people. We need to be proactive in running after life. The 20s, you know, we've said this, 20s should be the most energized, energetic community. Voluntary groups are staffed by war. 40s, 50s, 60s. Not because they've got more time, but because they've realized just turned in on yourself is not going to get it done. Okay, second one. Secondly, from, from needing to giving. Huge challenge in our consumer society is that we obsess about what we need. I obsess about what we need. It's usually some gadget or some, it's usually a holiday. You know, there's these lovely pools and swimming and clear water. And it says, at the end of the evening, just yourself and your partner. And you think, oh, wouldn't that be just lovely? Oh. (laughs) You know, and it says it's about foreign travel and meeting your needs. I'm not saying I'm against that. And if you go on those things, just don't tell me. <laughs> but there's this sense of uh, it's meeting my needs. But actually, what was Jesus, the fully formed man like? Poured out for others. Poured out. We've talked about this. Poured out, but never empty. We think, fill me and I will give. The gospel says, pour out. God will fill you. Poured out, but never emptied. The answer, if you want a a partner, is not necessarily to glow clubbing, although it is not a sin. Some of the things that happen afterwards are, but it's not a sin. The answer is to get out, and even if you're not naturally an extrovert, give your life to other people. Not just the one good-looking girl who comes into the church, or the one good-looking guy with a nice car comes into the church. We'll give ourselves to him. No, we'll give ourselves to everybody. It's good practice. I was talking to one of my children as we arrived here and saying, you know, you need to give yourself to people and become good at being with people because, you know, lo and behold, that's the sort of person that actually finds a good partner. And rather than saying, oh, poor old me, we need to change from needing to giving. We need to become proactive. Single people need to be proactive as they run after life. So actually, those of you that got stuck in in this church plant in your 20s, you realize that there's numerically less women around. Numerically less men around, single men. And every time somebody hooks up, it reduces it by 25%. And you think, oh, I should be in a big... I should be in a big church with like a massive singles group. You know, there's a one in London, I know. They, you know, and, and, but actually, that's all saying, please meet my needs. So I commend you for being in here and serving and giving. And I believe that actually, what's it say? Do not worry about your life, dot, 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 but seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Oh, does that mean God promises your wife? No. But actually, better to live life than to wait for life to come. Let's finish with this. From partner to Jesus, we've talked about this. We need to de, uh, demote marriage and talk about Jesus. From partner to Jesus. Many singles give in to the fear that they might marry the wrong person. We've talked about that. The picky, uh, self-perfectionist attitude. This kind of all about me. And others fear that they might never be married because uh, 
God won't provide for them. So they'll go out beyond, as John said, beyond people who share your values. It's about shared values, Christians, and they go out beyond. And actually, shared values are fundamental to, to getting a good marriage now. It's not about, has she got the bumps in the right places? It's actually about, has she got the values in the right places? So for every Christian that dates a non-Christian, and that person becomes a Christian, I could tell you countless stories where actually they're gone. So it's not wrong, it's just daft. So when I was a student, I dated, I dated this girl for a couple of years. She's, you know, yeah, she looked good on my arm. I had a lot of growing to do. And we backslid together and she dumped me. And obviously that wasn't good for my ego because it was all about my ego at that time. And uh, I, I drifted away from God because of that relationship. And I spent four years away from God and it was an awful place to be. And I didn't realize what an awful place it was to be, even though if you looked at my life, you'd think, man, I had a good life. You know, went to the places I wanted to do, clubbed with who I want, whatever. And then I got to a point where Jesus freshly encountered me, he never left me, you know that thing. He carried me where there was one footstep, or dragged me, I think, was the one that was on Facebook. You know, what's that groove there? That's where he dragged him. <laughs> That's where he dragged Howard kicking and screaming into the kingdom, <laughs> you know, whatever. But I, was, but I was dragged back by the grace of God into the kingdom. And guess what? This attractive, blonde kind of girl who I'd thrown my life away for, she rocks up my cottage in, in Oxford. She said, can I take you out for dinner? I was all excited. We go back. Have a coffee. And she said, will you sleep with me? I'd not slept with her. Will you go to bed with me? I thought, well, yes, I'd quite like to, actually. But I said to her, I said to her, you've got to go. you just got to go. And as I went to bed, I was really f- crying, feeling emotional, because I felt the pain of being dumped and then the challenge of just trying to do the right thing. And I felt God say to me, it's great when you trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And I really felt it really clearly. And it's not like the next day I walked out into Oxford and there it was, the wonderful girl. It was five years later that I met the wonderful girl. But, you know, it's about you must trust God. We must say, no, we trust you. And in every season of our life, we need to make those choices. And, and Paul then, let's finish, Paul says I dis- his singleness, he described his singleness as a gift. And some people say, oh, well, I haven't got the gift to be single. That do- doesn't mean he didn't fancy any ladies or he didn't like company or he didn't like interaction or he didn't like the. No, he saw his singleness as a gift. He viewed his singleness as a gift. He valued, he wasn't some cold-hearted person who didn't like women or too selfish to bother with friendships. He wasn't so f- stress-free in his concerns that he didn't care about a wife, but he saw his singleness as a gift. Paul saw his singleness not as a curse or a purgative to pass through, but a gift to embrace. He embraced his lifelong season of singleness and he gave himself fully to Jesus and his cause. Mike Pulavarchi, do you know who he is? Single man, amazing impact on people's lives. He struggles with the fact he's not married, but he's still, he's not turned in on himself and saying, meet my needs. Or used his even Christian celebrity to get a girl. He continues to pour himself out. And I believe that's what Jesus did. And that's what Paul does. Paul's ability to, was not, not to worry about his marriage, but to keep pressing on. Paul didn't choose some risk-averse life, choosing table decorations for his wedding anniversaries or wallpaper for the kids' room. He lived like Jesus, 
without a family because he belonged to God's family, the church. He, inher- he was inheriting the world not by filling it with natural children, but by filling it with spiritual children. He was not concerned for the family that bore his name, but the family that bore God's great name. He could even face death with boldness because he was not concerned to leave a wife and kids. Married or single, we should live that way. I'm preaching to myself. Let me finish this quote. Paige Brown, the lady who came the fourth category, she said this. I am not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to deserve a husband. Nor am, am I too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundant to, to me and because right now this is his best for me and I'm going to embrace it. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.